The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans again. Romans chapter 1. We'll continue on in our study of this monumental epic epistle written by the Apostle Paul. It really is the outline of Christian doctrine, the outline of the theology of salvation, uh, really the unpacking of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And we found our way this morning all the way down to verse 18. Now, as we began looking at the book of Romans several weeks ago, I said there's a working illustration that we're going to use as we move through this book, and it's that of an automatic watch, a, a self-winding clock that moves by inertia, that moves by, by the, where the, the mainspring is wound by movement. And in looking at that, there's the simplicity and the complexity of the truth of the gospel. The simplicity is it just tells you what time it is. The complexity is all those moving parts and those intricate gears well, this morning we're going to be happening upon one of the most intricate of all the gears in the book of Romans. In fact, it's one of the most intricate gears in all of Christian theology, if not the most significant and most misunderstood gear in the entire Bible. It comes in the simple words on the opening of verse 18. For the wrath of God. Anytime we would read such words, you almost need to stop and pause and pray and worship. The text goes on. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This morning we're going to look at this verse in its total, and next week we're going to look at this verse as it's connected with the following verses, because it needs to stand alone and also be an on-ramp and an introduction to the verses that follow and finish out chapter 1. Imagine for just a moment that there was a journalism major in our church, a journalism major who was... Um, worked through the, all the classes in English and writing and journalism, and finally graduates, goes and sits down for his first interview with a local newspaper, and all goes well. At the end of the interview, the, the manager asks, do you have any questions? And the student says, the recent graduate says, well, I don't really have any questions, but I do have a comment. The graduate says, I have to let you know that I love to write, and I love to express the news. However, I have no intention of communicating or reporting on any bad news. I just can't bear the thought of reporting on things that will be hard for people to swallow. Well, do you think he would get that job? How about a more graphic illustration? Imagine a young doctor who is so sensitive that he could not bear the thought of telling a patient that he or she had a serious illness that needed immediate medical attention. So afraid of how that might land, so afraid of how that might be interpreted, so afraid of the response of that truth that they just backed off from telling them anything that was perceived as harsh or bad news. Neither of these two people would be honest, neither of these two people would be faithful to the profession that they were called to or to the job that they were hired to. 
We come this morning to a passage in Romans 1.18 that is a similar kind of parallel in the life of a teacher or a preacher of God's Word. The subject before us is not pleasant. The subject in our verse is not happy. It's not a joy to deliver. It doesn't make me ecstatic with smiles to talk about. It's a terrifying subject. It's a traumatic and a horrific reality that confronts us in verse 18. But our commitment to study God's Word verse by verse, the privilege I have of standing in this pulpit, which has done so for many decades, compels us to take the next passage in its context and unpack its meaning, to feel and sense its gravity. This morning we come to the subject of the wrath of Almighty God, His anger, His furious wrath. It's incredible to discover that so many believers, so many Christians, so many professing Christians seem to think that the wrath of God is something they need to make an apology for. They need to cover up. It's almost like taking a friend over to visit that, that one uncle that, that has some, some quirks in his personality and you, you just hope he doesn't show up in those quirks and you have to give us some kind of apology or explanation for. Some people treat God like that in relation to his wrath. Oh, they love talking about his love. They love talking about his, his salvation is extended, his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his niceness. But some act like there's no such thing as God's anger, as God's wrath, as God's fury. Some theologians have even considered it a blemish on God's character and have erased it entirely, creating entire theological constructs that are absent of the wrath of God and their understanding of theology proper. Arthur Pink writes this. The wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as his faithfulness. Now think about that. The wrath of God is as much a divine perfection, a divine attribute, as his faithfulness is, or his power, or his mercy. It must be so, for there is no blemish whatever, not the slightest defect in the character of God. Yet there would be a blemish in the character of God if his wrath were absent from him. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish. And he who hates it not is a moral leper. How could he who is the sum of all excellency look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice, wisdom and folly? How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How could he, God, who delights only in that which is pure, lovely, loathe and hate not that which is impure and vile? The very nature of God makes hell as a real necessity and eternally the opposite of heaven. Not only is there no imperfection in God, there is no perfection in him that is less perfect than himself. In other words, he's saying God without wrath is not God at all. He cannot be at the same time holy and hate sin and not have that expressed in divine fury. In the text that we come to, we find that phrase that Pink discusses, the wrath of God. 
It's a phrase that could send chills up the spine and probably should. It should cause the hair on our arms to rise. It should cause us to swallow hard. It should cause us to say, wait, is this really saying what it's saying? And if you think that it's bad in this verse, you need to come back next week. As I've said over and over, if you're sensitive and you don't like being called really bad stuff and names, you don't want to read the book of Romans. He is not kind to unkind creatures in their response to God. But that makes the gospel so brilliant against that black backdrop. Some view the idea of God possessing wrath as, as an anger, as, as somewhat disturbing, as somewhat something you should avoid, even making him a monstrosity. I read one theologian this week that said, to call God a God of anger is to call him a monster. Others call the idea of a wrathful God deplorable, blasphemous, saying that a God with anger is a God who is crippled and unworthy of the throne of heaven. Scriptures teach just the opposite. Some are so repulsed by the thought that God possesses wrath and anger that they invent a God in their own image who they'd rather worship who's only nice and only good and only gives sweet gifts. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. What we're going to do this morning is be more theological. We need to get some breadth in the scriptures and understand this phrase, the wrath of God. And as I said earlier, we're going to look at this, this, uh, uh, this verse uh, in its totality, but then we're going to look, look at this verse as an introduction to the rest of the chapter next week. So there are going to be, be some things that we, we drill down on this morning and some things that we're going to wait and drill down on until next week. The first thing we need to notice is, is um, that there's a theology that must accompany our understanding of God's wrath. We have to have a theolo- theological category for an angry God. In order to understand this, we're going to look at this passage and discover together four theological insights into God's wrath. Four theological insights into God's wrath. Let me just tell you at the beginning, the first one and the last one are the longest ones. Because the middle two we'll explore more carefully next week because the following verses actually explain them. The first theological insight is in the first part of verse 18, the nature of God's wrath. The nature of God's. We have to define it. What is this thing called the wrath of God, the anger of God, the fury of God? Verse 18 says, for the wrath of God. In verses 16 and 17, as we studied in, the previous, in previous weeks, Paul explains that the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's power for the salvation of sinners. Why? Because in it is revealed the thing that we need most, the righteousness of God. We cannot assume any point of of favor or merit or earned status with God. There's no way we can be good enough for God to wink at and give us a pardon for our sins. In the gospel, verses 16 and 17 say, God's righteousness is revealed for unrighteous man. But there's a massive assumption in verses 16 and 17, and that assumption is that we need salvation. We have to put ourselves in a position of debt in order to get God's blessing in salvation. Just for a moment, look over at chapter 3, verse 19. The, very, uh, the verse we're looking at in verse 18 begins an argument that really climaxes in verse, uh, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. It's a little phrase I want you to highlight. Uh, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. And here it is. 
that all the world may become accountable to God. Paul's reference point is everyone will be accountable to God. The issue in the human psyche, the issue in the human response, the issue in the human heart is to come to that realization now while there's time to respond to God's grace and favor, not at the end, after death, when there's nothing but judgment. As Paul writes Romans, which is essentially, as we said, a a theology of salvation, which which lets us know before uh, the gospel is preached and applied, it must be understood that we need salvation. The only person who desires to hear the good news, the only person who cares to hear the gospel and the good news of Christ, to receive his forgiveness, is a person who knows he is justly condemned and helpless. The most fundamental need of every person who will enter into salvation is to come to the point where they realize what trouble you are in with God. Why is this so important? James White writes this, Every fundamental error regarding the doctrine of justification that is ever invented flows from a denial of the nature and impact of sin in a man's life. Do do you get it? How bad you really are. Do you get that we are, as we'll see in a moment, born as objects of God's anger and wrath. We weren't born and then kind of figured out a way to fail. We were born as moral failures. We were born in sin, born with a stiff arm in God's face. As we've said over and over, no one ever has to teach a two-year-old how to disobey. It's inherent in our DNA. So, in verses 18 through the end of the chapter, Paul begins to prove the case that we have a radical, massive need for God and His grace for the gospel of Jesus. Specifically, in these verses, he proves that all men need salvation, especially the Gentiles. When you get to chapter 2, he's going to prove the same thing with reference to the Jews. As is the case with much of Paul's argumentation, he's a genius writer. He gives you the main principle and the main point and then goes back and explains that point. And that's what he does here in verse 18. And then we'll go over the next 14 verses to explain this simple principle that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against men and against unrighteousness and ungodliness. Here's a simple context. Here's a simple concept. Here's the whole argument in a nugget. Man needs salvation from the wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who who try to pack their sin and suppress, with their sin, suppress the truth like a suitcase, an overstuffed suitcase in unrighteousness. In the last half of the chapter, uh, Paul discusses the two main themes, the revelation of the wrath of God and the suppression of the truth of God, which he introduces here in verse 18. He launches this great argument, this great prosecution against man. The charge is that God's highest and greatest creature, mankind, has had a history of sin in such depth in such moral depravity, in such breath, that we all stand in a condition of absolute hopelessness before God. This is such a severe condition that that we're painted into. Salvation and Christianity is not something you just add to your life like joining a club. 
It's the most fundamental reordering of your worldview possible. Where we start, as Jesus says, by hating yourself. You start by denying yourself and saying, I have nothing, nothing in my hands to bring. Only to thy cross I cling. Nothing that we bring to God that will earn his favor, that he'll make, make him elbow the angels and say, look how good that man, that woman is. So he begins informing us that man, Paul does, every man, every individual man, every collection of humanity in every generation, every particular man, every particular woman is under the righteous and furious anger and wrath of God because of our sin and primarily because of our resistance to the gospel. This is nothing new. God demonstrated his wrath in Genesis 6 to 8 by means of the great flood, right? He demonstrated his wrath in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. He unleashed his anger and plagues upon Egypt in Exodus 6 through 12. Unless anybody think, anyone surmise that this is just the stuff of the Old Testament. In Revelation 16, he pours out bowls of wrath and anger on the world. And his robe is dipped in the blood of those he's conquered. In each of these manifestations of God's wrath, the origin is clearly sourced in heaven. We often think of heaven as just a state of bliss, and it is. But there would be no bliss without God's wrath and anger. He is perfect in the balance of his attributes. From heaven, he vents his wrath on the perpetrators of ungodliness and unrighteousness. We must have a theology for God's wrath. We have to have a category in our theological thinking for God's anger, for an angry God. Why? Let's be theological for a moment. Let's back up. God is holy, right? What does his holiness mean? He's morally perfect. He's entirely separate from us. He cannot entertain sin. He cannot be around sin. Sin can't be in his presence. His holiness creates this moral gap, this canyon, this chasm between him and us as sinners. So man must approach God through the merits of someone else. Even if we started today and we're perfect the rest of our life, we have a whole life behind us of sin that would disqualify us from coming into God's presence. It's impossible. We are in trouble. We need a righteousness in our account from someone else, and that's what the gospel is. Christ is that other who made such access possible as Romans 16 and 17 has taught us. 1, 16 and 17. God's holiness is expressed toward his creatures through righteousness and justice and wrath. Now, think about that. His holiness is demonstrated to us in his justice, his righteousness, and his anger, his wrath. Now, it should be carefully noted that man can never earn merit, any kind of reward we receive from God. He doesn't deserve anything but punishment. Divine justice is intended to, and is actually obliged to punish sin, to punish evil and evildoers. Some deny, by the way, that, that um, this is punitive. There's a huge theological debate on this issue. Some people actually think that God's wrath is, is not punitive. Instead, it's, it's reformative. It's, it's for reformation. It's for rehabilitation. 
God's wrath is only expressed toward the sinner long enough for the sinner to learn his lesson and then he's ushered into heaven. That's called purgatory, where you're purged of those sins. God's wrath is waylaid and then you're allowed to come into heaven. God's rewards are called by theologians remunerative, which, which means they're entirely based on God's love, not man's merit. God is the inflictor of judgment, and that's called his wrath. He doesn't reform after death through justice and wrath. He punishes forever. Ultimately, when we're talking about the wrath of God, we have two two dimensions of that. It says that the Greek text is very clear. It's the wrath of God is revealed. It's a present tense. We're seeing the wrath of God in this world. Do we wonder why there's so many... Issues in nature that the insurance companies call what? Acts of God. We are in a cursed world. Wait till we get to Romans 8. We live in a cursed world. This world isn't getting better. Just read the newspaper. There are two Greek words that are translated anger or wrath uh, uh, in the English. One is thumos, which is uncontrollable rage, out of control. It means to breathe violently, anger. That's not the word attributed to God here. This is the word orge, which is, which is indignation that's settled, that's calculated, that rises gradually and becomes more settled as it's produced. God's not out of control. God's anger is calculated. God's anger is furious and yet controlled. The wrath of God is, is that disposition of God, that attribute of God, that stands in fierce opposition to man's sin and disobedience, especially in his resistance of the gospel. And that attribute is what provokes his judgment. Now, the Bible is replete in teaching us about God's wrath. I want to take you on a quick tour. You're welcome to write these down. You might not have, have uh, the speed to be able to, to, uh, to catch up with these. They're all in my notes. And if you want to try to turn, you're going to be frustrated. Numbers 23, 23. Be sure, say it with me, your sin will find you out. Numbers 23, 32, rather 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. No one's sin will go unchecked. Hebrews 9, 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed to man once to die, then comes the judgment. Luke 13, 5. Jesus said, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you know this well. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's the trespasses and sins which create our spiritual, create our spiritual deadness. In which you formerly walked... These are talking, talking to save people. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too all, uh, we, we formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Psalm 5.5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all those who do iniquity. 
Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. 2 Kings 22, 13, very interesting text. Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. Remember, they found the book of the law. They took it to have it um, uh, interpreted and, and read and taught to them. And their first response was, this is a God who's wrathful, who hates sin. Revelation 19, 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress, listen to this phrase, of the fierce fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. We'll just see in a few weeks. Romans 2, 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, I love John the Baptist. We, we read this this morning. When John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees in Matthew 3, 7, and the Sadducees coming to him for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, you want protection from God, but no repentance. You want fire insurance without a life change. You want to be saved without being sanctified. The nature of the wrath of God is ultimately he will judge, and as we'll see in a minute, that's manifest in hell. These next two points we're going to look at very briefly because we're going to discuss them in fuller context next week. Second theological insight into the wrath of God is this. The source of God's wrath, the source of God's wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from where? From heaven. Heaven is the invisible residence of God. It's the place of perfect order and righteousness. Remember what the prodigal said when he came to his senses? He says, I have sinned against heaven. Heaven is a synonym for the righteous presence of God, a synonym for the justice of God. This is described so clearly in Ezra, chapter 5, verse 12. But because our fathers have provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Provoked the God of heaven to wrath. Ezra 7, 23. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. The idea that heaven is where God is and that's where wrath comes from. To think of heaven without justice is to think of heaven as, as a bunch of fluffy clouds. Remember in Revelation where there's that unimaginable scene. This is an interesting scene. People often say, do people in heaven know what's going on on the earth? I've heard people argue very, very strongly, no, they don't. The problem is, in the book of Revelation, two different times you have the martyrs Standing before the throne of God saying what? Why have you not dispensed your justice yet on those who martyred us? They had a very clear understanding of the lack of justice on the earth that God was reserving. And as you see two chapters later, he starts pouring out in those bowls of judgment. It's not outside nor a contradiction of God's goodness or his character for him to dispense wrath and judgment. In fact, it's consistent with it. 
We'll come back to that next week. A third theological insight into God's wrath is this. The objects of God's wrath. The objects of God's wrath. We just need to mention this because this is what he explains in the following verses in great detail. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against who? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. First thing to notice here is that there are no exceptions for God's wrath. See the word all? There's no hallway passes. There's no exceptions. Every man stands under the rightful, furious wrath of God in need of salvation from him. And as we'll note, there's a vertical and a horizontal dimension of the expression of our depravity. It's ungodliness, our depravity toward God, and unrighteousness, the way we live horizontally in this world. And we'll see exactly what that means and how the truth of God is exchanged for a lie in the next passage. But just for a minute, let's look at this last insight. The reasons for God's wrath. The reasons for God's wrath. This is really what Paul starts talking about all the way through the end of chapter 3. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress. It's the idea of an overstuffed suitcase you're trying to close. You're stuffing it in. Who stuff, who suppress, who cover the truth in unrighteousness. Detail will follow in the coming weeks. He suppresses this truth in thoughts and actions of unrighteousness. He exchanges the truth of God for lies. Worships the creature rather than the creator. Worships self rather than God. The mirror becomes the idol. The mirror becomes the altar. Now let's be clear about the ultimate expression of God's wrath. It is meted out to those who suppress the truth by sending them ultimately into hell. Remember, there's two, two dimensions. First is the wrath of God is revealed, present tense, is being revealed in the earth, on the earth, in lives, on the planet, but it will ultimately be culminated and consummated at the final judgment, the second death. God's ultimate expression of his wrath is the punishment of unbelievers in, I almost don't even say this adjective, in eternal hell. Doesn't ever end. There's no, no second chance, no retake of the test. When's the last time that you really gave serious thought? To hell. If you're a believer, it's so good to think about the hell from which we were saved. And if you were an unbeliever here this morning, I beg that God terrifies you and shocks your soul and burdens your conscience with the reality that hell was not a myth that your parents made up when you were young to keep you out of trouble. It is a real and present and future reality. Hell is described as a place of fiery torment from where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched, Mark 9.44. Matthew 18.8 says it's an everlasting fire. It never ends. 
It's described as fire in Matthew 5, 22, unquenchable fire in Luke 3, 17, a flame in Luke 16, 24, an eternal fire in Jude 7, fire and brimstone in Revelation 14, Revelation 20, Revelation 21, and a furnace of fire in Matthew 13. Remember when we read Dante's Inferno in, in high school? The last line of the inscription over the gates of hell in Dante's Inferno reads this, thus, All hope abandon ye who enter here. Even though Jesus spoke repeatedly about hell, in fact, he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven in the scripture. It's amazing that so many theologians have tried to extinguish hell's fire. Shocking. In 1935, George Buttrick wrote, quote, A God who punishes men with fire and brimstone through all eternity would hardly be godlike. He would be almost as satanic in cruelty and childlike in imagination like a nasty little boy pulling off the wings of a fly. The Christian faith is that God here and ever after is only like Christ, end quote. Most Catholics would agree that the greatest theological articulations in the last 200 years were made by the previous Pope, John Paul II, who, by the way, was a confirmed universalist and said in his weekly address on July 28, 1999, rather than a physical place, hell is a state for those who freely and definitively separate themselves from God, the source of all life and joy. The thought, this is Pope John Paul II, the thought of hell and even less the improper use of biblical images must not create anxiety nor despair, end quote. Entirely neutering the scripture of the threat of hell. But perhaps the most outrageous and blasphemous statement about hell, which I'm aware of, came from the contemporary theologian who is now dead and knows better, Clark Pinnock, who in the spring of 1990 wrote this. It's, it's actually a hard quote to even read. Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment of body and mind and outrageous doctrine. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Then he said this, Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God. End quote. Godly men, however, have spoken very, very differently about hell. Puritan William Nichols said, The heat of the fire will everlastingly torment them, and the stench of the brimstone will offend their senses, while the blackness of darkness will continually horrify them. He goes on to say, For the damned who inhabit that place of eternal wrath Hell is truth learned too late. What a great insight. Hell is truth learned too late. 
Most people think that God is absent from hell. Nothing can be farther from the truth. Luke chapter 12 says, Don't fear him who can destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. I tell you, fear him. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He's not the captain of hell. Satan is the chief captive of hell. God, God runs hell. It's truth learned too late, where forever the soul is tormented by the fact that they had an opportunity to respond to God and they didn't. They had an opportunity to be somewhere else and they aren't. Christopher Love says, Hell is a place of torment ordained by God for the devils and reprobate sinners wherein by his justice he confines them to everlasting punishment, tormenting them in body and soul, being deprived of God's favor, objects of God's wrath under which they must lie Unto all eternity. This is hell. John Chrysostom, I love this insight. The pains of hell are not the greatest part of hell. We often think of that, the the pains of hell, the, the torture, the torment, that's the worst part. Chrysostom said, no, the pains of hell are not the greatest part of hell. The loss of heaven is the weightiest loss of hell. Hell is full of everything we dread. Physical pain, loneliness, darkness, which accentuates our fear, regret, and the absence of another chance. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11 says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, People aren't thrown into hell the first time they sin. God's grace reigns. His mercy reigns in the life of an unbeliever. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know, Solomon says, it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil men, evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Oh, you may increase your pleasure in this life, Solomon says, but hell lasts forever. The doctrine of hell is the expression of the wrath of God, perhaps the most unpopular topic of discussion in doctrinal circles today. Most disbelieve it exists. And of those who take it seriously, they have very unbiblical ideas about it. You can earn your way out of it. It's not as bad as you thought. You'll be there with your friends enjoying a forever party. There's the expectation that others may end up there, but little expectation that the person himself may indeed be on a highway headed to hell. It's no secret to, to those of you who, who've been here for a while that my historical hero is, is Jonathan Edwards. Edwards preached in that famous July sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which he unpacks the wrath of God in such vivid detail that before he finished the sermon, people were screaming at him, what must I do to be saved? In that sermon, these words continue to grip my understanding 
of the wrath of God. He said this, The bow of God's wrath is bent and straining. The arrow is already set on the string and justice aims it directly at your heart. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, an angry God, who is not restrained by any promise or obligation that keeps that arrow from being drunk with your blood. This means that all of you whose hearts have never been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, have never been born again and made new creatures, raised from being dead in sin to new light and life, all of you are in the hands of an angry God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What do you mean by that? Why would you fear God? Because God is the judge, and hell is forever. Spurgeon's famous words. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Just Romans 5. Rebels against God from birth, recipients of God's wrath, earners of God's disfavor, reservoirs of wrath, Sinners, unrighteous, helpless, ungodly. Yet, Paul says in verse 6, when we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for us. The ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think of people that I know and love who are under God's wrath and judgment. And it's a thought beyond processing. But Spurgeon says, don't let them go. They're unprayed for and unwarned. If we believe in the wrath of God, if we believe in hell, that compels a level of evangelism 
that nothing else can. It propels a depth of prayer that nothing else will. And if you, if you are under the teaching of God's word this morning, as one against whom God's hand is at the bow, it's bent and straining, ready to strike you, please, please, no procrastination. Don't walk to Christ. Run to Christ. Let's pray. In the perfection of your attributes, our Father, we see your wrath. We understand it. It's a terrifying, horrific doctrine. And yet it is true and we affirm that you are rightfully and righteously angry with not the generic wicked, but with us. Oh Lord, thank you for the protection of the Lord Jesus who in his death absorbed the full fury of your anger and wrath for sinners who believe move in the hearts of those who have heard this text and cause them to crush their pride and run to the cross and receive forgiveness and pardon because not only does hell last forever heaven lasts forever thank you for the cross how can we do anything but sing and say thank you to you, Lord Jesus, to you, Holy Spirit, for quickening our conscience and our decisions, for you, Father, for receiving us because of your Son. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.